when I realized it wasn't you was when he made this quote. It's not the money that matters. This was always about a fight for justice, a fight against corruption. So it was worth it. Because you would have been like, no, it was the money that mattered. <laughs> this podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. It's back to school time, my friend. It is. For me, it's uh, it's back to travel time. I was in Chicago this week on business. And uh, you know what's really crazy about that? There's like, you know, your stereotypical, like, pudgy businessman kind of talks a little <laughs> too much. They're back, man. They, they took really? kind of COVID off. And then, they like, the family started to come back. Now it's like business travel like it used to be with more delays. Uh, before we hop in, rate and review the podcast. SkippyDoogles.supercast.com is where you go for the premium subscriptions. SkippyDoogles at gmail.com or at SkippyDoogles on Twitter for listener mail. Uh, hit us up. We appreciate that. Skippy, there's something you've been keeping from me. Yeah, what's up? And I don't appreciate it. I appreciate the listener mail. Don't appreciate you keeping stuff from me. There's this legal battle you've been fighting for 22 years that I didn't I didn't even know about. I don't talk about matters that personal on the podcast. Yeah. I so I come across I have to learn from the internet. So I come across this article that says the title is Man Overcharged 20 Rupees for India Train Ticket Wins 22 Year Legal Battle. The first thing that comes to my mind is the only person that I know that would go through a 22-year battle to save 20 rupees, which, for the record, is the equivalent of about 25 cents. Yep. It's a quarter. It's skipping. Yeah. To be fair, he won the settlement. He got about $188, I think. So, I mean, this is well worth his time. Think of the return on investment even 20 years later. (laughs) Yes, I was was talking to my wife about this article. And that was what I was like. (laughs) That's where I went. Because she was thinking about this absolute dollar terms. And I went 25 cents to $188. Pretty solid. It's pretty solid. <laughs> now, <laughs> so let's, let's get well, to it. No, uh, we got we to dive in just a little more. What this highlights that I didn't know is India's overloaded court system can typically take, like, uh, your average case can take 10 years. I had no idea of this. And where I went... After I said, this guy's awesome and I love him because he got his 25 cents back is like that has ramifications across your country that we take for granted in the States. I mean, and I'm not claiming our legal system is perfect, but trials aren't taken 10 to 20 years. Um, And and in this case, it's funny because both sides were so stubborn, even the the train agency or the train Indian the company that owns the trains yeah indian railways uh t- couldn't just settle and so they both waited 20 years and how many I, ceos I, did indian railways have in the last 20 yeah, years exactly. I could have I said, give this guy 200 bucks and i joke about this uh this being you but actually when i realized it wasn't you outside of it being an indian man in india when i realized it wasn't you was when he made this quote it's not the money that matters. 
this was always about a fight for justice, a fight against corruption. So it was worth it. Because you would have been like, no, it was the money that mattered. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you know how much cool stock I could buy with that 25 cents? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know? Speaking of Kohl's, they're like all up in my social media feeds because apparently I talk about them so much because I'm the only one on earth that's willing to buy them at this price. (laughs) They have some really cool back to school stuff. Like they got this exclusive deal with Levi's. They got some really cool shirts. I might actually end up shopping at Kohl's, which is like the upset of the century. On that same front, Dougal's, I know you're a little bit of a sneakerhead, right? And when you think sneakers, who's the first person you think of? Jordan. Yeah, all right. Do you know in 1984, when Jordans first came out, Nike aimed to generate $3 million worth of Jordan brand sales over a period of four years, right? So less than a million bucks a year, really ambitious goal. Do you know how long it takes uh, the Jordan brand to sell $3 million worth of gear today? 10 minutes. Ooh, that's aggressive. Happens every five hours, right? Talk about exponential growth. Isn't that insane? That is that is quite. I have a book. Hold up, I don't. I can't. I can't see it right now. But I have a book about like the culture of sneakers, um, as opposed to. And I think that's it. Like to, to get that kind of growth is when you go from being like a business to ingrained yeah. in society. All right. Um. It's pretty pretty amazing. All right. Can I fishbowl it? Yeah. Go okay. for it. Okay. I'm gonna reach into the fishbowl. I hate the name of this, but we got to we got to we got to call a spade a spade here. I want to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. So if I knew nothing about this and someone said there's an Inflation Reduction Act, the one thing I would guess it wasn't going to do was increase spending (laughs) because inflation in its simplest definition is too much money chasing too few goods. But Wait, guess so what? adding it, more money would it help the problem? Yeah, adding more money usually does not help the problem. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah. So the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed by the Senate, passed by the House. This is Biden's, like, basically his term defining piece of legislation. It's the biggest piece of climate legislation that America uh, has ever passed. I'm going to I'm gonna give uh, a few highlights here. On one side, it aims to raise revenue. For the government by implementing a 15% corporate minimum tax, having some prescription drug reform, giving more power to the IRS. And by by more power, it's like really any power. The IRS is so resource like constrained, it's quite ridiculous. So it's given given more money to the IRS, $124 billion to be exact. Then there's this other piece of revenue piece, which we, we this could go off in a number of different directions, which is around uh, 1% excise tax and stock buybacks. Let's just put that aside yes. for a second, because yeah. I don't want to make you too angry. Um, and then on the investment side, so this is the spending. The spending is $369 billion on energy security and climate change. It's huge. $64 billion um, to extend elements of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and then there's some drought resiliency. It's a heck of a lot of money. This is a It's a big big deal uh that's going into this and uh there are there are a couple actually let me pause let me pause get your reaction to that and then i can dive into a couple things that are most interesting to me well there's so many layers to the onion here like it's so complex everyone who listens to the show knows that i'm going to hate the tax on buybacks so we're not going to talk about that we're just going to say it's absolutely idiotic uh politicians have no clue what they're doing they don't understand what company ownership is 
let's move on. No, um, we're going to talk about that. We're, <laughs> we, we have to talk about this. If for nothing else, we should give the... I'm just going to talk about it because you, yeah. you, you, you don't want to talk about it. So yeah. let me at least give the high level on what buybacks are, maybe so that folks understand why you can get angry. So there are there are two ways that companies give money back to shareholders directly. One is dividends and one is buybacks. So dividends happen when a company makes profits. So you take all the spending out, you take out taxes, company has profits, and they use part of those profits to pay um, pay back their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And let me mention that those dividends are taxed. So if I'm looking at a way to to give people who own my company money, there are many people, including Warren Buffett, that will argue dividends are not the most efficient way to actually provide some of those profits back to the shareholders because of the tax disadvantage there. There you go. There's a double tax situation going. Buybacks are when a company takes pre-tax money and buys back some number of its shares, right? And so the company hasn't paid taxes on, on that money. And the individuals, the shareholders that didn't sell during that time get an increase in value. And they're not also paying tax until at some point they end up they end up selling the shares. So there's the, the efficiency you're talking about. So that's the difference, dividends and buybacks. And what we're here talking about is the 1% tax on the buybacks for companies. So I just want yeah. to at least give the, at least to give the background, at least give the background. Yeah. And so incredible CEOs, we've talked on the, the podcast before, and I know that we said these exact words, a major part, if not a majority part of a CEO's job to be successful is capital allocation decisions, right? And these capital allocation decisions often involve, hopefully, when your company is incredibly profitable, what you do with those profits, how you reinvest those profits to maximize uh, the value of your company, but also shareholder returns, right? And so if your company is growing, if you're Google in 2005 or many other situations, there's probably all sorts of different investments you can make in a new product line or you know some other facet of your business think amazon here you can go make uh smart bets some of which will fail to become these incredibly successful incredibly profitable companies at some point apple and steve jobs had to take profits that they had and reinvest in the vision of the iphone and do that there are other situations especially when maybe your stock price is incredibly undervalued, where the best investment you can make is actually to take some of your shares off the shelf to reduce the amount of shares outstanding by buying back stock. It's just a smart business decision to make because if you don't have that option or if that option has a tax associated with it, that encourages you to make bets in a new product line probably the dollars and cents of it aren't a slam dunk. That's just part of how businesses work. Sometimes when you have this extra cash, you should have all the options available to you. And if one of those options is buying back shares, that's a good thing. I don't think 1% is going to drastically change the market there. But the, the bigger deal here, and I'm egging you on here a little bit, I think the bigger deal is that this made it in. And nothing about carried interest made it in, which is a much 
we don't have to go there. I know, I know, it gets you real angry. Um, but I think that that's the that's from a uh, from a political perspective, what it seemed to have taken for this bill to get passed, um, because the private equity lobby would not have allowed carried interest to to get in there. Well, so just briefly on that, what you need to know at a high level is that in the past decade, the private equity lobby started spending hundreds of millions of dollars in Washington because they realized that this was something that could potentially happen. And the people that would most likely pay those taxes are people that hit the jackpot with some sort of investment in a company that grew significantly. So it... Do you want to to define it? I'll let you define it. (laughs) Yeah, that that sounds good. Uh, So definition of carried interest is we've talked here about the two and 20 before around how uh, hedge funds, private equity can make money. So you get a 2% management fee and then 20% of profits. That's not how all of them are organized, but it's kind of like a standard. And that 20% of investing profits that go back to the team, or to go back to the uh, the private equity partners, that is a portion that is today taxed as capital gains and not taxed as ordinary income, which it basically is income. Like every, I think every everyone would agree with that, and that's that's carried interest, and that is what is uh is oft debated as to whether if you if you end up taxing that as income, you're effectively doubling the amount of tax. If you have to raise taxes, this is one where you're raising taxes on likely someone that is cashing a ten million dollar check or a hundred million dollar check or whatever the case may be. Like this is not going to send people to the poorhouse. It's just not. And the alternative that uh, as to make it more difficult for companies to allocate profits in a way that makes the most sense for them, just it just gets me really fired up. Um, again, I don't have all my literature in front of me. I don't think anyone listening actually cares or wants us to do a deep dive on carried interest or the buyback stuff. But if you do holler and we can do that, I, I can certainly bring out all my articles just a really frustrating process where I feel like the politicians lost what would be truly in the best interest of the American people. But let's reset here, Dougals. I think when you wanted to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and we get rid of these two nuanced issues, um, you wanted to talk more about what that actually means and if it's good or bad, correct? I want to talk about energy specifically. Okay. The, at the high level, it is, what does this mean? Is it good or bad? One, it's not an Inflation Reduction Act. That's marketing. So let's just be yeah. clear about that. Yeah. There are there are cases where it will decrease costs. I'm not saying it won't decrease costs, but it's going to decrease costs in 2032 for that will not impact inflation today. Right. And so it's uh, not... I read that they expect it to increase inflation over the next decade by like 0.1%. <laughs> so... It's meaningless, right? There, there you go. There you go. Um, but what's interesting to me from an investment standpoint, potentially, is the impact that it has on energy and climate change. Because that's an area that uh, at least a small a por- portion of my portfolio, but one that I like to add to a little bit here or there where things sit. So like I, disclaimer, um, always not investment advice, um, but I have I've part of my portfolio in Next Air Energy, the utility that's there that has a large like renewable element to it uh hvac is the new black 
right? I have my 50-year bet on HVAC. Don't laugh. <laughs> Don't laugh. Right. So, but I pay attention to this stuff. And so one of the things that um that gets me fired up here is I'm looking at within the I can't call it the IRA. <laughs> I can't. I will always <laughs> say it out fully. The Inflation Reduction Act is there are home energy rebates for like electric appliances. There are EVs, so cars, electric vehicles. There are tax credits for like heat pumps, solar, all that kind of stuff. Electric HVAC. Yeah. And so that's yeah. the stuff that I, um, I'm i paying attention to to figure out if there is, a, I won't even say like an additional play, but just like what that might mean for the industry, I would say. Um, and so that's that's the part of it that I'm paying attention to. So that's the most interesting for me as an investor. I think if there's some positives to come out of this, it's that there's more certainty around the next decade for renewable stuff. So a lot of these credits or rebates that were out there that people didn't really know from electric vehicle manufacturers to solar panel producers to everyone else in between. It was like, what does three years out? What does it hold? And now I think all that stuff is is guaranteed for at least the next decade. So hopefully there's more stability, which should make the investing process easier. From an investment angle, it matters also. I mean, it really, I don't want to get political here because I don't think this is political. Like, yeah. we do have to do something about from a climate perspective. Or we know we don't. If we want our next generation or two generations to be around, then we should do something from a climate perspective. We don't have to. We could get selfish with it. But so this does incentivize like a lot of things that I think going back to our conversation uh, around role of government, potentially, my view is that government is there for long-term stability and thinking about what our country slash maybe world now that we're global needs in 50 years. And I think this is a, a material way to do it. Inflation reduction as a marketing element of it. I don't know, but that's my view. I mean, that is the one thing that we talk about a lot. And that if, um, if there was something to applaud with this, it does at least have a long-term perspective. Right. And I, I think that's appropriate. I read a breakdown early on, Going back as early as the 70s, you had presidential advisors saying we need to do legislation like this. And the first attempts politically were more of the carbon tax type. It was it was like a Adam Smith, free market, invisible hand sort of thing. And what this article did is it broke down how difficult that is to get buy in politically. And so this is a less efficient way. Um, to hopefully get to a similar end because they did it all with rebates and stuff. So it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out because it the adoption will probably not be as rapid because it's a convoluted market rather than just like a straight invisible hand free market approach. But that's how you get these bills passed. So I understand why they did it. There it is. Cool. All right. What's in your fishbowl? I read this week. I'm still processing this. You're going to help me process it. Over half of Americans between 16 to 74 read below the equivalent of a sixth grade level. So I'm going to let that sink in for a little bit. It This just has me baffled. Uh, and it's not something I should be surprised by. But we talk all these statistics about, you know, the average American leads re- reads less than one book per year, et cetera, et cetera. But then the way a lot of intellectuals, let's just say people that read the New Yorker or, you know, fill in, fill in the blanks here. 
the way they try and convince the masses is with essays and journals and science magazine and all these other like highly intellectual things. And Dougal's, I bet you and I fall into that in some of our debates and some of the things we read too, uh, when we throw out book recommendations. So where I'm going with this is, is the average highfalutin intellectual in this country using the incorrect approach to, to attempt to educate and change people's mind if that is actually their goal. I didn't think that was the angle you're going to go with this. The reaction I have there is I think that there's a there's a level of condescension that intentionally or unintentionally ends up mm-hmm. existing in how we talk to one another, which I think exacerbates the the problem sometimes. Like the I think a prime example of that is you go back to um what Hillary Clinton said when she what did she say, like degenerates or like when she called uh, Trump um, followers, like something like degenerates. Right. And I think it's it's things like that that end up when you make that statement and then she talks the way that she does. And she's just like very educated. She's very knowledgeable. Right. And so it's nothing against that. Right. But it's the combination of those two things when it's like you create like an us versus them and then and then um, have this intellectual stance. I think that then creates like attention of folks even wanting to associate with an intellectual stance. Um, and so I, I think there's a level of condescension that ends up existing, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally, that that exacerbates the problem. My interpretation of your question around uh, are folks approaching in the wrong way makes me think, like, should we create TikTok videos instead of having these conversations? And I'm like, I don't, I mean, that might get a message across, but I think people, like, we would just want people to read, right? Like, well, I, I, I mean... In a way, though, that's where I'm going. What What is the fastest growing social media platform in the world? It's TikTok, right? And it went from like Facebook, which was largely written text, to Instagram, which was pictures, to TikTok, which is video. Like it's, it keeps getting more like easy to consume, right? It's less reading. Let's just say it that way. And I just wonder if that's a sweet spot because... People now either don't have the attention span or maybe they just aren't naturally gifted at reading. But I, I wonder if the messaging needs I, to change. I'm not saying for me and you, yeah. but I might be saying for I, your average intellectual. I am I am by far not an expert in this space, but I I think that I wouldn't go that angle, um, okay. at least not fully. But the bigger thing for me is that in, in this article, it points it out is how concentrated the lack of reading is. And so there there are, there's got to be direct links between the the neighborhoods, counties, right, the locations, the geographic locations. If you look I'm looking at this map in here, right? And so there's California, these are the these are the yeah. states that have lower reading levels, California, and we all know where it's not concentrated, right? In California. Right? Yeah. This isn't like Atherton or right? It's not places like that in California. And then you'd basically start going along the South. Like you just, you'd take, go from California across the South. And those are the lowest reading capability states, according, according to this piece. I I don't think that it's like a broadly, it's this generational lack of focus, all that stuff. I think that it's, we need to invest in, and sometimes it might be dollars, but oftentimes when we spend dollars, we just spend them inefficiently. You brought that up like before. And so it's 
there are more focused interventions um, so that we can we can support like a part of the population that is probably feeling and not this way, not just in, from a reading perspective, but feeling left behind in a lot of other ways as well, uh, economically, right? We're seeing this everywhere. No, so I'll put this on the Twitter, but this is APM Research Lab um, and they break down adult proficiency literacy skills. It relates the the stat I mentioned first from level one to level five. I think that's pretty self-explanatory and it is California, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi are um, have the greatest population of adults that are in level Texas, one. Yeah. Texas, Texas. Yeah, sorry. I meant to say Texas. It. I don't know. You know, I, I just this has made me think all week about not only what it means, not only how the funding should be different or what the intervention should be, because I don't think anyone's going to argue that having more people be highly literate is a bad thing. But then I I naturally went to like the messaging around it and the we talk about a world that's so bifurcated with the amount well, you know what people consider facts these days uh, politically is the easiest example to talk about but there's other examples is like completely 180 degrees from each other based on what you consume and I'm just saying let's talk investing I've often thought about writing an investing book and. One of the reasons I'd want to do that is because I think it it generally adds to the world. Like it'd be a good thing for more people to understand basic investing concepts. But this just had me thinking, well, writing a book might not be the best approach to do that. If you're truly, depending on who your target audience is, right? It might be TikTok videos. It's crazy. I know. But then this, we, we've had so many conversations about the rise of crap, yeah. misleading content. Right. And and then we joke about TikTok investors, but <laughs> what this says is that like that is the place that people are probably getting like their their first knowledge about what investing could be is the dude trying to do home mortgage fraud or whatever. Um, yeah, well, right? that's the problem, right? Because I'm just saying have have brilliant folks like Jim O'Shaughnessy or Meb Faber or there's so many Morgan Housel. Right. If those are your TikTok influencers that are teaching people investing concepts, like the Alpha Architect crew, like that would be that could be really meaningful. And I don't TikTok, so I don't know if any of those folks are doing it that way. I don't think they are. I don't think all they right. Are. All right. So next, I'm going to continue with the red that I brought up before, which the it was the the intellectual exercise that I brought up is like, what's the next surprise? But it, it popped back into my mentals over a couple things that I read this past week. And for those that didn't listen to the episode, what I was saying was that the the market sets uh, has expectations. When those expectations are met, then fine, it, the market does what it's going to do. But it's when those expectations, when something goes against those expectations, either in a positive direction or a negative direction, is when things shift. Uh, and two things I came across this week were, one, there was a, there was a Yahoo Finance article that pointed to an Elon Musk tweet from back in May. And here's the the little tweet thread was somebody says, do you still think we're approaching a recession? And Elon responded and said, yes, but this is actually a good thing. It has been raining money on fools for too long. Some bankruptcies need to happen. And I contrast that with what has actually been happening from a bankruptcy perspective. And bankruptcies this year 
according to Standard & Poor's, there have been 212 U.S. bankruptcy filings from the start of the year through July 31st, and that's the fewest number of bankruptcy filings through the first seven months of any year, going back mm-hmm. to at least 2010. And this is the this is the expectation versus reality element here, where we have so many companies that have so much debt that exists right now. They're not filing for bankruptcy, and if the market is expecting less fewer bankruptcies than it has historically, which this also points out is the case. There's like a, a bit of an uptick right now, but there's this this chart that we'll share out that is expectations of default rate. And again, there's a little bit of a tick up, but the expectations of default rate are not all that high. They were much higher back in 2020. And that's that's the the disconnect. Like there aren't a lot of bankruptcies happening. There's expectations of few bankruptcies, but then you have this freaking dynamite stick of zombie companies that yep. exist that have so much debt and that that's the type of surprise like that I'm thinking about like what is that next thing because you all hit you have the, all this dynamite and I'm gonna uh, I wrote this um this piece in uh called bullishly pessimistic back in in January um and this this is that was like the quandary that was sitting in my head it's like I'm still bullish right I'm all up in and stocks and whatnot, but then I see all I see all this data that just points to explosion, and when it's going to hit, if it's going to hit, how it's going to hit, you know, who knows? But that's kind of where that that plays into. So that that was one of my market surprise pieces. I'll get your reaction before I go into the second one. Well, I'm actually not bullish right now because <laughs> the stock market is rising. So I'm super pissed off. Uh, let me just, I'll just get my rant in here. Let's, we'll just talk like QQQ because that's what's hot right now. But it, NASDAQ's up, I don't know, the exact, like 20% or something from its trough, uh, from its recent trough. And we've talked, you know, when, when things were at a peak, we were like, hey, listen, look at any metric, CAPE, uh, price to sales, price to earnings, price to cash flow, whatever. It all says it's super expensive. It all says the U.S. stock market is one of the most expensive stock markets in the world, blah, blah, blah. But the argument at that time, uh, the simple argument anyway, was like, well, there is no alternative. Interest rates are zero, blah, blah, blah. There's no good deals out there. Well, well, then things pulled back and you're going, okay, the market's finally coming to our its senses. Its valuation is reaching more of historical norms. It's not like anywhere near cheap, but you, you could get to the point where you could start to make sense of the valuation and then we start climbing again and Dougal's the problem with this is you can now get a high yield savings account at two percent like there is a few alternatives now there there are some options out there and so i'm just a little pissed off like this rally should not be happening i don't like it i want the crash to continue for another 50 percent so i can sleep well at night as a value investor being like things are dirt cheap and i'm gonna go buy that I'm on the other side of that. So, okay, good. I'm happy with this. And I agree with all of your bullet points. It's like the the end result, the punchline for me. That was <laughs> different. Like all that's true, right? That's been true for for a little bit. I mean, this dynamite's but we've been sitting, we've been just like adding to the dynamite chain for quite a while. I j- predictions are worthless. Yeah, worthless, right? I'm not making predictions. Like, yeah. No, you're 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 not I'm about to make one, which is why. <laughs> right? But it's, it's what I said to you before, that my belief this year, and it's just a belief, my belief this year is that what ends up happening is the market ends up going back to or higher than what its peak was before. You're insane. And, You're- <laughs> I know. 
but literally it's, it's insane. A, but now it's not insane, right? The um the market right now needs to rise about 15% to be back to its all-time highs. Like that is not a wild amount from its trough it ends up being but like from where it is right now yeah. like could the market yeah. go up 15 percent? if we have a if we finish off this earnings season basically beating most of the expectations and there aren't any surprises like people are going to keep buying and i, I think well, and, i think the market and goes, if inflation appears to be under control exactly the market likes the, that yeah yeah and so like my belief is the market goes back to maybe a little bit higher than where it was and then one of the 16 different pieces of dynamite <laughs> will go off but people aren't yet ready to capitulate that's that's the thing is they're they're like they're not quite ready i'll give you my second example here so the first was around corporations the second thing is i came across this piece uh from the federal reserve about consumer debt this is the second one because people be talking about how consumers are in solid position right and i'm like they look like it it look like a duck but it's a freaking giraffe is what I'm saying, because this is so let me let me just let me just throw out a couple things. So total household debt increased by three hundred and twelve billion dollars during the second quarter of this year. Balances are now two trillion more than two trillion dollars higher than they were in the fourth quarter of 2019. So that was right before covid mortgage balances are a big driver of that because people get in houses and whatnot. Credit card balances saw a forty six billion dollar increase since the previous quarter. Right? And I'm going to. I'm going to look at credit card balances here for a sec. So $46 billion higher. Cool. But what, what this is saying is that people are like, yeah, but it's fine with the mortgages and the credit card balances because the people that are taking out mortgages have higher credit scores than they did when it was a problem. People that are increasing their credit, spending more on their credit cards, it's cool because they have higher credit scores than when we've seen this be a problem before. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, nah. Because these is also the peeps that are leaving their jobs and saying, I don't need nothing right now. Right. Yeah. And so, like, th it is a, like, there's so much of a problem that's building up right now. But we're saying, like, no, it's cool because their credit scores are 800 right now. Come back to me 18 months when their credit scores are 600. Like, th that is, this is the, th this is part of the issue. Delinquency rates are starting to creep up, mm -hmm. especially in lower income areas, but they're, but they're still low. Like, they're still really low. And people are saying that's why it's okay. And I'm like, nah, it looks okay, but it's a draft. No, when you hear that, I think about um, when we had two or three major rating agencies that were saying all the banks were solid and the Lehman Brothers collapsed. Like it, the target just changes to say, oh, this is good. This is good. Historically, this has been good. Here's your 800 credit score. And then they don't see the fragility that lies underneath that comes with debt. I. I don't know. I mean, those stats, uh, I'll tell you a, a brief story. Like I'm reading a book called Making Numbers Count. And those, oh, yeah, I read that one. Yeah. The, the human brain just can't process a trillion no, or a billion. Yeah. So when you, when you say, oh, this rose by two trillion, it's like, well, that's kind of meaningless, right? So I want to throw out a tidbit from that book that I really liked. If I take, if I say something that has a one in a million chance of happening, right? The equivalent of that is, I find all the Harry Potter books. I think I have to remove one of them. And I take all the words in those Harry Potter books and I randomly pick out a book and I circle word on one of the pages. And then I go, Dougals, go over to that stack of books over there and circle a word. And if we circle the same word, that's a one in a million chance. So I want to know, Dougals, what word did you circle? In Leviosa. I circled cream sickle. 
Why would you circle? I mean, that's that's on you. It's trying to think of a word that is not in the Harry Potter series at all. All right. Anyway, back to your point. I don't know, man. I think things are fragile. And my larger point with the the rise is there's still you get so many chances in life. And so when the dip was happening, if you were freaking out and you felt your investments were too risky. Well, now that things have risen a little bit, you still have time to recalibrate. That's that's all I want to say. In your crazy prediction, which is sure to be false, we get second chances in life. So I just want people to understand. I know that if things go down 50%, my portfolio performance sucks during that time. But I'm perfectly like in the right headspace for that. I'd, I'd be more excited about that than anything else. If you're not that type of person, take this opportunity to just make sure you're comfortable with whatever the future holds. Set yourself up for success. Definitely. And I agree. And mostly for me, I name it as a prediction, but it's really a, it's like a psychological state for me. Cause I, I haven't had, you know, I, we have the Dougal's indicator thing, which is what it is. But the, for me, where it's helpful is just in being able, like one of the places in, is uh, me being able to put myself in a specific psychological state. Yeah. Right. And so, cause I, if I go back to, I think it was late 2020. I was, I was like, I've been screaming from, yeah, I mean, you've heard me since then of like this whole thing's about to fall apart. Um, and then when I, I coded this thing up, I was like, okay, historically it actually says that it's not about to fall apart. And that just like puts me in a different psychological state. Cause in late 2020, I was like trying to figure out all the ways to short the market. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so now I'm like, okay, I'm not. And so my, my prediction isn't coming from anything like fully, scientific from a prediction perspective it's just like my psychological state because of where that indicator is is saying that the market's not ready to capitulate and if that's the case if that is true now i'm like adding assumption onto assumption <laughs> if that is true then what is going to happen is this right whether or not that's going to happen and the predictions are garbage right so like it doesn't really matter but that that's just like mm -hmm. where my psychological state is right now there was some heat today yeah you surprised me by throwing shade at the buybacks issue i was not ready to talk about the inflation reduction act but hey i hope that made for some good entertainment guys so uh rate and review as Dougals mentioned earlier we love premium subscribers hit us up at skippy Dougals or skippy um you can grab a monthly subscription there to support the show we really appreciate that thanks for listening guys we'll see you next week thank you